Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, I believe episode number 110, we're joined by Dan McGaw. Dan is an award-winning entrepreneur, speaker, and founder of Magal.io. He has been coined as one of the original growth hackers. In 2015, Dan was selected by the, uh, to be a United States ambassador of entrepreneurship by the United States State Department, where he had the privilege to advise universities, governments, and private corporations on how to build entrepreneur ecosystems. Dan, it's a pleasure to, very well, to welcome you to the show, to be my guest today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Absolutely. You certainly have a couple of ties to Ireland that we'll get into, but let's start with where you grew up. If I've gone back far enough, I believe it was Ohio. Yeah, I'm originally from Pittsburgh. So I grew up uh, from zero to about 12 in Pittsburgh, and then I moved to Ohio after I was uh, 12. So I went to middle school and high school in Ohio, uh, but originally from Pittsburgh. So through and through, I'm always going to be a fan of the Steelers. Mm. What was life like growing up supporting the Steelers? Any any favorite Sunday memories? You don't have to just specifically stick to the Steelers, but you can stick to life in Pittsburgh growing up. Yeah, you know, Pittsburgh, when I when I lived in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh was pretty crappy. Like, I'm not going to lie at all. Like, it wasn't very much a tech hub or anything like that. So um, I was always into computers and tech from a little, little age. Um, so Pittsburgh was kind of lame in that respect, is that, like, there just wasn't a lot of innovation there at the time. Um, but Pittsburgh's a great city. Like, the people are super, super nice. Um, when I... In Pittsburgh, though, I mean, I grew up in the hood, like I grew up extremely poor on welfare, food stamps, things like that. Um, so I lived in a pretty rough neighborhood, but very luckily, I went to a, a very, very affluent uh, prep school. So my grandparents were pretty successful. So they got me into this prep school. So I, I literally got on a bus in the morning from like one of the roughest hoods in Pittsburgh. And then I would ride that bus and go to this, this nice uh, private school, uh, which was super expensive. And it was just a huge dichotomy in my life, which really gave me a lot of perspective because I had to grow up in this rough environment, but yet I still had to go to this school where I was poor. I was picked on. Like, I mean, I would wear the same shirt three days in a row, right. Just cause I didn't have the money to get laundry done and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a, it was a fascinating way to see the world. And it really is what turned me into an entrepreneur was seeing that wild contrast. Um, and you know, I've never looked back. Uh, I've, I've, always focused on, hey, listen, let's hustle, let's make some money, because uh, I can be just like them. Uh, there's nothing stopping me from doing it. What, what, what was that, like, the moment that lit the fire in your ass that you said, do you want to go from here to be part of this other community? Uh, you know, I don't know if that was necessarily the fire. Like, I mean, um, I think it was definitely something that showed me that um, there's people that have things, and there's definitely people who don't. Um, and I just made the decision while going through that, like, I really want to have things, right? Like I want to be mm-hmm. part of the haves, not the have nots. Um, so that was one of the things that, that of course got me interested in, of course, wanting to do something, but I think entrepreneurship was just one of the things that just happened, right? I had to hustle. I had to figure out a way, way to make money. Um, and you know, when I lived in Pittsburgh, it was, I mean, when you're nine years old, it's really hard to start a business, but like I joined a street promo team. I tried to do stupid stuff. I would sell candy. Um, but when I when I moved to Ohio, um, it was a, it was a much different experience because Ohio is like where I lived in Youngstown is like I don't know to me it's like the middle of nowhere like there's not much mm-hmm. going on. Um, so I had a, I had a little extra time on my hands and I played a lot of uh, I had a lot of time on the internet 
Um, so I actually started a business online, one of the first online booking agencies. Um, and that was, we're talking in 98, 99. So like, this is a long time ago. Um, but that was really when I got into entrepreneurship. I started a business and did a whole bunch of stuff. You know, I don't think there was anything that lit the fire to that other than the fact that I always hustled. Um, I, I went to my first rave. I fell in love with EDM. And then I was like, listen, I can, I can help these DJs get booking. And then I turned it into a business. So I think that's kind of when uh, the, flip, the switch flipped uh, was that first endeavor. You mentioned your grandparents a couple of minutes ago. Uh, one of the questions that I ask people sometimes is, is there any one particular person, could be an acquaintance, close family member, friend, teacher, who you believe had uh, an impact on the person you've turned out to be today in your early years? Could, does anyone yeah. spring mind? Yeah, I mean, I'm super grateful for my childhood. I mean, I think um, while I might have had a pretty chaotic childhood, I mean, my therapist will be like, hey, listen, your childhood was chaos. You know, I, I'm super thankful for all the people that, that played a big role. I mean, I think my my grandfather has a huge role. I mean, he's tattooed on my arm here. Um, my grandmother played a huge role. She's tattooed on my calf. Um, both great inspirations for my life. My godfather has been a huge person and a mentor from an advisory perspective, a uh, business perspective. He's also an entrepreneur and runs his own business. So he's always been a sounding board for me to be able to bounce stuff off. My mom has been a huge inspiration. But, you know, I think my grandma was probably like the, uh, the direct one that really kind of helped form my personality. So I'd say my grandma kind of gets the cake in regards to some of my best role models. Nice. What's your grandmother's name? Dorothy. Uh, unfortunately she passed away about two years ago now. Um, but she kicked ass all the way until she died. So she was super awesome. Well, shout out to the legend that is Dorothy. Um, <laughs> at the start of the podcast, I referenced an, an Irish toy. And, and for our Irish listeners, here's what it is. So you, uh, you actually, let's rewind to 16 years ago is where I'm going to go with this. You spent two years as a training manager or a service manager at Raglan Road Irish Pub. Two questions. Yeah. One, how did you uh, land that gig? And uh, <laughs> people have said to me on previous podcasts, one of the questions I've asked on podcasts is, uh, if you could, uh, if you were the decision maker to add one subject that wasn't on the curriculum to high school, what would it be? And sometimes people say, they think people should do a stint in hospitality. So with that in mind, what lessons or lessons did you think you took from your time in hospitality that you've carried with you to today so how did you land it and then the second part yeah I, you know i was always in the restaurant business my family owned restaurants when i grew up and stuff like that so some of my cousins had restaurants um so i was always in that business and i always was working so even in middle school and high school i always worked in restaurants so the hospitality industry is really dear to my heart i love it um at raglan road um i actually uh was dating a girl at the time and i drove her to go do her job interview at uh raglan road before it opened and I just happened to be there and they're like, listen, why don't you fill out an application while you're here? Maybe we'll hire you. And I was like, whatever, I don't need a job. I already have one. But I filled out an application and then they wanted to hire me. So I was like, uh, a couple of weeks later, I was like, sure, whatever, I'll take the job. It was really a surprise uh, kind of thing. But it was, it was a great time there. I mean, I got to go to Ireland uh, for seven days, company paid and stuff like that because we did a really good job there. The $25 million a year Irish pub. So it's not like it doesn't do anything small. I mean, it's 25,000 mm -hmm. square feet. It's a big spot. Um, you know, I think my, from hospitality, you know, one of the things that I'm really big about is, um, I like to help others. I like to support other people. I like to serve them. And, you know, I think my time in hospitality has really helped me be a consultant because I, I'm more focused on how do we make this a good, great experience for that guest. Um, and that's definitely one of the things that I picked up from hospitality is how do I serve people? How do I treat people? 
Um, so that was a lot of fun. I mean, Ragland Road was a hoot. I mean, I, I can't say anything different. It was a great uh, experience. Um, and I, I could have stayed there and become the general manager and I could have stayed and, and grown more into that role. Um, but I saw where my salary was going and what the general manager made. And I was like, listen, that's just not enough. Um, and this is the work hours suck. So uh, I actually left Raglan Road to go start another one of my businesses, uh, which worked out to be great. So um, yeah, you know, hospitality is a great industry. It's a lot of fun, but it's not good when you have a family necessarily. It can be a little hard. Especially the hours, especially the hours. I, I studied yeah. hospitality in university and uh, I never pursued that path either for similar reasons to yourself. Uh, but you said you went and started another business, say to say you're a serial entrepreneur. I'm going to list a number of companies that you were founder and CEO of. Shattered Records, Untitled Management, Tabbed, Stardust Studio, Capenesis Around, Fuelsy, uh, UTM.io, and now the founder and CEO of Magal.io. Uh, you've yeah. also been a mentor for 500 startups, or at 500 startups. Um, any, there's this book that I, that I read, I don't have it on me at the moment, it's at home in the library, but it's, it's basically around 13 blind spots that can hold back an otherwise healthy business. Not, not just specifically spoken, focusing on early stage services, just focusing non-industry specific and things like uh, improperly onboarding people, uh, not building the bench, not fostering a culture of learn or fostering a culture of learned helplessness, not focus on lead generation. From your time working with other startups um, and, 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 and any other entrepreneur friends you've had, um, are there any blind spots that you see consistently pop up uh, that you think if people got their shit together on that particular blind spot, their business would be in a better place? Yeah, I, you know, I hate to say it, but I, one of the problems that we see, especially when we're working with accelerator companies, um, it, it, there's too much emphasis focused on raising funds and not enough emphasis on raising revenue. Um, and I think revenue and sales becomes a blind spot for, for most companies. Um, you know, really, you, you're not going to make a successful business um, just by hoping that people are going to show up to your website or by content marketing. You need to sell your product in a lot of cases. You need to have communications with customers to learn more about how to build your product. So I think a common mistake that companies do is they are only focused on product-led growth when maybe in their business, if they would give a little more sweat equity to sales and generate revenue that way, um, they could be a much bigger business. People have a tendency to go, hey, I'm going to offer a cheap tool. We'll get millions of users, but I got to go raise funding to build the product when in like my, my recommendation for most companies is why don't you just go find an enterprise customer who will basically pay you to build the tool um, and continue to do that over and over and over again. And you build a product based on revenue, not on funding. So I think the people need to stop focusing on raising money and start need to focusing more on doing sales and raising revenue. Mm. Yeah, or else you could a business pretty fast. Um, you have a free book that you have on your website. It's called Build Cool Shit, a blueprint to creating a marketing technology stack. People want to get a free copy of that. Is there a best way to go about it? Yeah, so one, you can go to the website, magad.io and you can get a free copy through the website, which is super easy. But if you want to have some fun, uh, a great way to be able to do it is if you pull out your cell phone and you go to your text messages, what I can do is get you a free copy through one of our SMS bots. And this is a lot of fun. So um, if you type in the number, so if you're not in the United States, you got to put in one, but uh, 415-915-9011. I'll say the number again, 
415-915-9011. And if you just text the word MarTech, so M-A-R-T-E-C-H, if you text the word MarTech to that, it's actually going to collect, uh, it will send you back a request to get your first name, your last name, your address, all that stuff. If you submit all that information through there, it's then going to be able to send you a free copy of the book. So just go through that process and you'll get one shipped directly to you. Awesome. Well, if anyone didn't hear that, you can go to the link in the description and the details for the text will be there as well. Um, lifetime value, LTV, some people refer to it as, uh, of a customer is important to understand. There's an example yeah. you gave in a blog around uh, if your customer acquisition cost is, let's keep it simple, say like 100 bucks, and someone's first purchase is a book for 25 bucks um, or even 20 bucks, um, and that's done through uh, Google ads that drives them to buy that, you might. If you're just focusing on that, you might end up switching off the Google ads because you're losing $80. So for those who are not familiar with the term LTV, this is the first time hearing it, um, how important do you think it is to understand your lifetime, the lifetime value, value of a customer? Um, and is that possible to get a big picture of what that is? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it's definitely possible to understand your lifetime value and it really just comes down to tracking, but lifetime value of your customer is extremely, extremely valuable. And it's something that you have to know, or you can't effectively do marketing because it's very rare that when you acquire a customer, the first purchase is going to pay you off for whatever mm -hmm. that is. So you do have to track your lifetime value. And this really does come down to ultimately, how do you store your data about your customers and how you can get that? I mean, if you're a digital only business, naturally you have products like Stripe and Barometrics or ChartMogul, which make it a lot easier to track your credit card payments uh, and make it a little bit easier to see your metrics. I highly recommend for any digital business that's using Stripe or even a Braintree or anything, platforms like uh, Barometrics and ChartMogul will spit out all of these numbers for you. You don't even have to do any heavy lifting. Um, they even will allow you to manually import data. So I think like using a platform like that can be really, really helpful. If you're a business a little bit more like myself, which we have online platforms, so we sell our businesses through Stripe, we have people who pay credit cards for some of our products, and then we also have people who are going to send us checks in the mail, right? We, we have big contracts, right? People are paying me $30,000 a month as a consultant, um, we, we have to accept a check or a wire transfer. All of that information for us is still stored in QuickBooks and as well as going to be stored in Salesforce. So we still make sure that we take that data out of those platforms and then put it, whether it be in spreadsheets or we put it in, of course, a database, which we can then stick a, a, a Google Data Studio on top of and see that data. Um, but it is extremely, extremely important to understand what is your lifetime value? Of course, what is your 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 cost per acquisition. So really, really simplified, hey, I spent $100 on AdWords, but you also have to understand your CAC, right? Cost to acquire a customer, which is in total, what, how much am I spending on marketing? How much am I spending on the tools that marketing has? You need to know your CAC and you really want to look at what is my CAC, cost to acquire the customer, all the things it takes to acquire them from ads to people, um, and then also your lifetime value. And you have to make sure that your lifetime value metric is of course higher than your CAC metric um, in most cases, right? If you're Uber, CAC is really, really high and LTV is really, really low because you're trying to buy the market. That's mm -hmm. blitz scaling and things like that. That's a totally different model. But for the normal business, um, you want to make sure that your lifetime value is much higher than your CAC or your cost per acquisition, or you're just going to go out of go out of business, right? Like that's what it's all about. What I'm hearing there is one of the key things is to have a technology in place that speaks to the other technology so that you can have all this in one place so that you're not missing any elements of the 
it's called the jigsaw yeah and, and there's a ton of tools that give you that i mean like one of the most popular dashboarding tools uh, for small businesses right now is a company called databox um, they integrate in with everybody and they consume all of the data and then let you make really, really easy dashboards out of it. Um, and at the end of the day, um, you can't manage what you can't measure and you need to measure so you can manage. Um, so it's really, really important to have those tools that are going to help you uh, understand, am I doing good? Am I doing bad? Something I don't want to spend too much time on, but I want to touch on a little bit to get your perspective on this, because having spent a fair bit of time on your website and looking through a lot of the content that you've published out there, your uh, very knowledgeable in, in this area. Um, attribution. I'll, I'll, I'll let you define what it is for a user who want to know what it, what it is in a second, but here's where my head was at. I had a conversation with my friend maybe two weeks ago, and it was um, he has he, he has a podcast like I do, and he helps company uh, SaaS companies with their, funny enough, their demand, demand generation. And what he was saying was that if he was to look at where his customers came from, uh, according to a CRM, it would say organic search. But then when he's asked these customers uh, or they've mentioned to him on discovery call or close call that it was through the podcast they got introduced to him and then listening to, you know, five, six, seven, eight episodes, then they go and Google his company and his name and then they find them and they inquire about it. Looking at that, your that company lead is attributed to organic search or it could be, something else but what it's not saying is it's not attributing to the podcast so you might be doing the podcast for there's all this data around you know if you make it past three episodes on a podcast you're in the top 90 percent or whatever so you might make it episode 20 and then see no uh attribution to the success of the podcast but actually a lot of the leads and customers close have come from the podcast so i'm struggling to wrap my head around how uh good marketing attribution technology can be when like keeping in mind the example i just gave so one can you define what that is for anyone who want to know what it is and two have you any thoughts on what i just said yeah for sure i mean and there's a uh the first thing i'll start out with is marketing attribution is is no matter what it's always going to be wrong right so when you have to think about this is like when when um you want to go north or south, right? Like you can still head northeast and still wind up in the north, right? You can still head northwest and still wind up in the north. And what attribution is doing is just making sure that you can head more in the right direction. But it is, is it inherently flawed, especially when you start talking about multi-touch attribution? Like, and we know way too much about that. And if somebody wants to get into the weeds with any of the attribution stuff, please go check out our website. Just Google Maga and attribution. You'll find stuff about us and other places too. It's a lot of fun. You can't measure everything, right? And you have to understand, like when you think about somebody's buyer journey, now let's use the podcasting example, right? So you can't tell that somebody listened to a podcast. There's no one-to-one -one connection to that yet, but you can tell that the podcast is a leading indicator that you're gonna get more Google search. So if you start doing podcasts and you notice Google search go up, obviously you have a little bit of a correlation there, but it's not gonna be perfect. However, when that person comes in and you see in your CRM, they have organic search. If you ask that person verbally, right? If you're on a call with them and they say podcast, obviously you can manually update that. Mm -hmm. That being said, when somebody does fill out a lead generation form, and we just talked about this big time with a huge uh, insurance company here in the United States. The problem is, is that you, you should be asking when people come to your website, you should track where they came from. So Google Analytics does that. All of your analytics tools will save, oh, they're direct, they're organic search. They came from this ad, right? Like that's out of the box. 
The problem is, is that might not be the moment of truth on how they actually hear, heard about you, right? So the moment of truth and the zero moment of when they actually found out about you. So one of the questions that we see a lot of people ask is in that first uh, form that they fill out or that a follow-up to that, how did you hear about us? Now, if you put a how did you hear about us on your site, you're going to also get a lot of bad data. And I want to make sure that we understand what, what we recommend. Most people who add it, how did you hear about us onto their website? Add it as a drop down. Well, 90% of people are not going to want to select and they don't care about your data. So they're just going to select the first option and move on, which means mm -hmm. if you do it as a drop down, it's going to actually work really, really bad. What we advise most companies to do is to actually use a checkbox system that are randomly put onto the page. So that way, when somebody comes there, it's going to say, how did you hear about us? And instead of just them using a dropdown and selecting convention, right, they would maybe, as an example, podcast, right? You'd have a checkbox for podcast. You'd have a checkbox for Facebook. You'd have a checkbox for organic search. You'd have a checkbox for TV. Now, the reason why you make checkboxes is because it's very, very unlikely this person heard of you of one place. So if they heard about you mm -hmm. on a podcast, and then they went in Google search. Well, they heard about you in two places. You want that data. And if you put a radio button, they can only select one. So you maybe want to ask, how did you first hear about us? That being said, you have to understand people are always going to select the first value that is there because they don't care about your data. So if you want to kind of get rid of that, you can randomize how those things appear on the page to make it so every single time that page loads, there's a different number one, there's a different number two, there's a different number three. That way it will normalize out some of that data. So that way you don't have false positives and you can see what is truly uh, winning there. But it's, it's not, there's no way to truly solve the attribution problem because at the end of the day, we're not robots. We are not computers. We are humans and we make decisions for many irrational uh, reasons. So you can't, it's literally attribution is a finger in the air. You have to understand that uh, it's directional. It's not definitive uh, when you do it. And if there's a lot of hacks to improve it, trust me, I mean, I spend, I would say 30% of my projects are focused on attribution. So, uh, but there's a lot of ways to work around it. The article you have on your site open here in front of me is, is absolutely fascinating around attribution. You know, there's time decay attribution models, there's position-based attribution models. One that I found fascinating was uh, shapely, the model uh, of shapely attribution, where it looked like, uh, and I'll pull it up on screen here for anyone who wants to see it, that uh, the likelihood, the increased likelihood of purchase was an increase by 50% by actually adding in something, if I've understood that correct. It had search, email, and then a 2% likelihood of purchase, but on the shapely one, it had search, display, email, and a 3% likelihood of purchase. So. If I've understood that correctly, um, and that thing, have they added in something else for, like added in an extra step in the process or uh, am, am I completely lost on that? Uh, I wish I could say uh, I know exactly what one you're referring to. So it makes it a little bit hard to uh, give you the exact answer. Um, you know, I think the problem is, is that attribution models themselves are difficult. Um, and everybody uses something different. So most recently, you're seeing a lot of these very, very custom attribution models. And what's becoming most popular is ignoring direct as the last channel. So um, looking for the last session before somebody was direct and using that as an attribution. So you're seeing a lot of these custom attribution models coming out. Um, so they're, they're different for everybody. And that's, that's what makes it really, really hard. We just always recommend you need first touch, you need last touch, and you should try to get to linear. Um, if you can get to linear, you're already doing better than 98% of the people out there. And something else you say is only use analytics to guide your decisions rather than prove that you're right as well when it comes to attribution. Yeah, no, for sure. Just be data informed, not data driven.
lead scoring, uh, using lead scoring to increase sales. Um, can you explain what this is? Absolutely. Like lead scoring is one of my favorite things out there. So um, when somebody comes to your website, right, you can track that they're doing that. And with most marketing automation tools, if they visit the pricing page, you can give them five points to a lead score. If they visit the contact us page, you can give them 20 points. If they download a white paper, you can give them 10 points. Um, if they buy a product, you can give them more points, right? And you can also in a lot of these tools say if they, they visited um, this page, give them negative 20 points, or if they did this action, give them negative points. And what you're trying to do is come up with a score on that contact record, whether that's in your CRM or your marketing automation tool that enables you to understand somebody's ready to buy or somebody's not ready to buy. Um, and we use lead scoring a lot in our company. So if somebody hits a 300 lead score in our CRM, sales gets a task, sale knows to reach out to them. They know that this person is currently looking to buy. And that's based upon site traffic, using our free tools on our website, uh, and as well as what our sales reps see uh, out in the wild. They have the ability to increase the lead score as well. So, um, but lead scoring should not just be used for sales initiatives. It should also be used for engagement tracking and understanding whether somebody is at risk to churn, whether somebody is at risk to stop using your product in general. Um, there's a lot of other types of scores that you can add to a contact record, which will give you the ability to not only understand, are they ready to buy, but are we about to lose a customer because they're no longer engaging with us? So what you, when you're talking about losing a customer, like if, if they're just not using uh, the tool as frequently or um, yeah. So at, at our company, um, utm.io, right? So utm.io is a campaign link management tool. So it helps you uh, get data governance around your UTMs and your campaign links. Really, really straightforward. But if somebody has not used the product in 30 days, if there's inactivity for 30 days or more, what happens in our system is our marketing automation tool, Autopilot, decreases the, the engagement score by 20 points. So every 30 days, it's going to come down by 20 points, right? Every time they log in, uh, basically, it's going to, if they're active for more than 30 days, it's going to give them an additional 20 points. Now, as that engagement score comes down, there's alerts that are sent to our internal team. So, hey, listen, this person's engagement score is now below 200. We probably need to do some investigation onto their account. And that's a really, really simple one just on them logging in or not logging in. But we also have other engagement score around when people copy their links or when people build templates or they invite team members to their account. And we use all these different scores to understand, are they getting value from the product? Because if you stop using the product, you're not getting value from it. Um, and in that case, it's one of our customer success manager's job to reach out and say, hey, how's everything going? We just created this new feature. We wanted to make sure that you guys are getting value from the account. How can we make things better? And if they are going to churn, you know, let's find out why. Let's Where did we go wrong? So that way we can fix it on the next one. So um, really, really helpful stuff to have engagement score, churn score, things like that. If they're going to get points for, let's say, um, referring a friend, essentially, if I've got this right, you can then identify external brand ambassadors to an extent. Absolutely. Based yeah, off I mean, them getting two points every time they refer someone every month. Then you can look and go, well, why is this person right? So, a lot of their points are coming from referring new customers and then that self-identified as a external brand ambassador. Absolutely. You can use point scoring for all kinds of stuff. And that's one of the reasons why I'm a huge fan of it is because if there's mm. anything that you want to be able to track, you can really easily track it. Now, in, in my book, Build Cool Shit, right? Like one of the things that we use point scoring for is to help the sales reps better understand where people are having a problem uh, when building free t-shirts. Because Real Thread, the company we worked with 
they're an online t-shirt printing company, but they do big orders. So like Amazon will order like 20,000 shirts from these guys. Well, they also have people that come in and just order 50 shirts. The biggest problem that people have is when they're going through the online t-shirt builder, right? You have to add a logo. You've got to pick a shirt color. You've got to make sure that everything looks good. You got to get the right type of shirt. It's a complicated process. So every single time somebody adds a logo, uh, uploads a logo to a shirt, we track one point, right? On that record, we can count now how many times somebody has tried to upload a logo. Well, if you looked at 36 different colors of shirts, so we increase the point of uh, how many shirts they looked at as they look at different shirts or apply them. If somebody has looked at 36 different shirt colors, but only looked at one type of shirt and they've uploaded nine different logos, well, they're, they're having an, a design issue. They can't figure out what logo with what color looks good on what color shirt. And this immediately gives the sales rep an opportunity to then say, hey, listen, we, we noticed while you were using the builder, you uploaded a lot of logos. And we also noticed that you use a lot of different shirt colors. Did you want some help with getting some design help on the shirt? Um, and that's using a scoring system as well uh, to basically track that in your CRM by count, tracking the amount of time somebody does an action. So scoring can be used in a, in a very, very wide range of mm -hmm. things. Um, and it can be extremely helpful. Even to understand where someone is in the buyer's journey as well. Um, um, one of the things I was conscious of going into this because you're very knowledgeable in a number of areas I've touched on and going to touch on, well, I wanted to try to keep it simple for the people listening, but also aware that they may drift and get confused or get scared with going well there's so much here to do because you know I, I i don't have that in place i don't have that in place someone could go to upwork and hire a developer to get them to put this into place relatively easy i'm assuming absolutely right and don't get me wrong some of the things i've talked about are pretty advanced but at the same time they're, they're really not rocket science but you do have mm. to have some technical acumen to to get most of that stuff done I hire people on Upwork all the time, right? So, I mean, I have, I think, three people that work for me right now that came from Upwork. I love Upwork. So most of this stuff you can get done by hiring somebody for $20 an hour on Upwork, if not even cheaper than that. Don't forget, like, you get what you pay for. So, like, if you want it done right, sometimes you got to pay more. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I, definitely on Upwork. I'm going to ask you to uh, give your thoughts on a story, but if you can't remember it, I'll completely take this part of the podcast, but it's around referral conversations at your time at uh, Code School, where you introduced a thing called Hall Pass and grew users from, I think it was 60,000 to 600,000, which is 10x yeah. in 17 yeah. months. How did you do that? Oh man, the Hall Pass campaign was a ton of fun. That was probably one of my... It, it, it was a lot of fun to work on. You know, what we noticed was, is we saw Dropbox, drop, uh, of course, have their referral program. And what we wanted to do was try to figure out how can we create that same referral program. Um, Code School is a, it was an online school for intermediate to advanced developers. So our job was to take developers that worked at most corporate companies and help them level up and learn a new language. We were not like Code Academy, which was beginner to intermediate. We were intermediate and higher. So the problem with the developer market is that developers, one, hate marketers, right? Um, I was not even liked at the company uh, by all of the developers, right? They did not even like me. Even though I was the first employee, I was helping grow the company like crazy. They didn't, developers just don't like marketers. They don't like advertising. So what we had to do is figure out a way to make it, how do we get one developer to tell another developer? Um, and we had some cool viral promotion already in the product uh, that we really noticed that would help. So when you could complete, and for anybody who has an online education company, this is a simple hack. When somebody completes a lesson, right? So you have a course, which is maybe six lessons or 10 lessons. At the end mm. of each lesson, give them a badge, give them something that they can brag about, and then give them the ability to share about that online. 
they will. And developers did like crazy. So this was already a huge part of our growth was that every time somebody completed a class or a lesson, they would get a badge and then they would share that on Twitter. So we saw that demand coming in. So we're like, how do we amp that? So the hall pass was, um, we, as an online education company, we had no way to give a seven day free trial or a 30 day free trial because you would just come take the one course you wanted to get value from and then you would quit. So we came up with, uh, we did a lot of research around how long does it take somebody to complete a course? On average, most people take a month, but for the, the really crazy people, they'd get it done in seven days. So we came up with the hall pass, which was basically when you sign up, if you did not pay within your first 24 hours, we would send you an email the next day saying, hey, here's a hall pass for two days to do whatever course you want in the platform. Go check everything out, try as much as you want, but you have a hall pass for our entire school, go try a course. Now, when we would give people that hall pass for the first time, we had some people who would take advantage of it, but we tried to make it so it was a little bit more viral. So, hey, now that you have your hall pass, if you give somebody else a two-day hall pass and they accept that two-day hall pass, we will then give you two more days. So for every one you give, you get two more uh, days to yourself. Um, it took us a little while on how to work out the math and make sure that we had all the timing down and stuff like that. Um, but by creating a reciprocal referral program, which is really, really important, reciprocal referral programs work really well. Um, it took us about six months to really get the math right on um, how many days, um, what time do we send the emails? Uh, so there was definitely a lot of experimenting. Um, but by making it so that a developer could get two days for free of education, then he would give his buddy two days for free of it, uh, or excuse me, free uh, education he would get two more, it made it so everybody wanted to promote it. Um, and it, it worked out really, really well. well. They wound up having to shut it down after I left uh, not too long because they were growing so fast and they just didn't need it anymore. Um, there always is gonna be a hacker who takes full advantage of it. There was definitely people who invited uh, 20 fake emails and we had to cap it at a 30 day thing. There's a couple of people that earned like 3000 days because they like hacked Whoa. the system and obviously. But at the end of the day, when we catch those people, we just ban them, like it is what it is. Um, but it definitely helped set the stage for the company's growth uh, and was one of the uh, things because we were able to grow so fast uh, is why we got acquired by Pluralsight is because we were creating such amazing content, but also growing 20% uh, month over month. I mean, for a long time, uh, well, which was great. Kudos to you, Dan. Kudos to you. Um, Thanks. That was, that was the campaign I, uh, where somebody called me one of the original growth hackers because I guess uh yeah either way that was a long time ago i didn't i mean that was 10 years ago now um well, well deserved well deserved well um, i hope you've been a founder and ceo i alluded to it earlier on of the companies i think there was probably six or seven of them shattered records unlimited management mcgraw utm um through your time as a founder ceo is there a commonly held belief about your role founder CEO that you disagree with? Um, so something that people think about CEOs and founders, um, is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I think something that's, we're human. I think that that's the thing that most people forget is um, as a CEO and a founder, something that I think a lot of people forget, especially because like when you're a CEO founder, you're, you're, pretty, you're pretty much alone uh, a lot of times. While you have a team, you can't share everything that's going up on here with everybody else. You just can't. So a lot of times you find yourself alone and you make mistakes. Like you, you don't always make the best decision and you don't always have the best outcomes. Um, and I think people have a tendency to forget at times that we're human too. 
Um, we're doing our best. Um, we get a lot of critique and a lot of flack in regards to decisions we make. Um, and, you know, sometimes people forget that uh, we're still just human and we're, we're trying to do the best that we can. And you don't have all the same information that we're being given. And we can't share all the information we're, go we're being given for legal reasons and mm. financial reasons, stuff like that. So, but the biggest misconception I, I think people forget is at the end of the day, a CEO is still a human. Um, we're just like you. We just have a different job title and we have a different responsibility. Great answer. Great answer. You're right. You know, uh, I always thought that about celebrities as well. They're just people. They go to the toilet like you go to the toilet. So why, why fuss about them when you see them on, on, on the street? Um, yeah. Safe to say you're incredibly knowledgeable about the area of work that you work in um, and have uh, deserved every title you've been given. Um, how do you continue to upskill or improve or learn podcasts, certification programs, mentors that you go to yeah you know i read a lot so in 2020 i read 40 42 books this year alone i've already read 16 books i'm a little bit behind on my schedule but i think i'll be able to get caught up um but i do a lot of reading i think that's really really important you know i'm not a big um uh, i'm not a big podcast listener just because i think that it's too um uh newsy in some capacity so it's too uh, instant like i don't watch a lot of news i kind of stay away from that i'm really looking i think books are my primary way i of course get filled in by a lot of things through my team but um books are probably my main way for upskilling right now and again for anyone who's interested in your book build cool shit what was the number and thing that i text again yeah, 415-915-9011. And if you just text the word MARTECH, M-A-R-T-E-C-H, uh, you'll be able to get a free copy of it. Two final questions before we wrap up, Dan. The second last question is, I see you're in your house at the moment. I don't know if you're married or have kids or have animals. If you do, they're all safe. I have all of them. All of them. Dan, above. I have oh, all well, of them. well, all of them are <laughs> safe. And I say that because I want you to pretend your house is burning down. And you can only save one item. What item would that be? Outside of my family and kids? I just want to make sure if I grab one Outside item. Outside of your family and kids, yeah. I <laughs> just wanted to make sure. I was like, I don't know if I can do that one. Um, you know, honestly, probably my phone. <laughs> I mean, my phone or my laptop would be the first two that I would grab. Um, just because I want to make sure that I can keep working. You know, I think uh, people mm -hmm. place too much value on things. Um, you know, and my, this is my spare bedroom. Welcome to my spare bedroom, my house. And it looks beautiful because my wife cares tremendously about it. it does. If, 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 uh, I wasn't married and, uh, my wife didn't make so many decisions, uh, for me, uh, I'd be living in the tiny house, right? I'd have like nothing. I'd be, uh, I'm pretty minimalistic. I don't need a lot to, uh, get by. So, you know, I honestly wouldn't grab any of the shit in the house. I would care about my kids. Where's my phone and where's my laptop? Cause I need to work tomorrow. Uh, but the rest of the stuff burn it to the ground. We can buy it again. I mean, that's, and why do we need all this shit anyways? I mean, that's, uh, it looked great in here though. I will say that. I just, you know, it, it does look good, but there's a, the common answer, materialistic shit means nothing. A lot of people don't, they, 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 they might have one thing that, you know, like my, my father has a camera that his great grandfather gave him from World War. So yeah. he, he said he'd take that, but there's not a lot of people that would think of one particular thing that means a lot to them. Um, so my, my last question is, um, I'd like you to imagine we're talking as if, it's now the year 2030 and you're looking back on the last nine to 10 years, the last decade. Um, you can answer this personally or professionally or a combination of both, but if it was now 2030 and you're looking back, what would you like to be looking back on? Uh, just the continued growth of, um, 
my family and my company. Um, so, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing that I'm, I, I'm a growth minded person. I'm always looking to get better. I'm always looking to improve. And, you know, I think over the next 10 years, I mean, we're going to go from a $2 million business to a $50 million business. So um, I'm super excited by that. Uh, and, you know, my, my kids are going to grow up and, you know, I'm, I can't wait to watch that happen. Um, and I'm just going to take a lot of pictures along the way. So, cause they're getting old fast. Awesome. Well, Dan, thanks again for being my guest today. I'll leave links to the, the blogs that we referenced throughout the marketing attribution blog and then your, your book as well below uh, and, and your LinkedIn page as well. But for now, thanks for being my guest. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. If your metro don't trust you, I'm gonna show you. Beautiful morning, get the sun in my morning.